so how's Miami? I mean, your hotel room looks looks fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. I got a great view of the Miami skyline. I miss this place so much every time I come back. Um, it's going to be a great Lou Gehrig day. We're raising tons of money for ALS research, but I'm mostly like saving the world and curing uh, a terminal disease. That's that's great. That's all child's play compared to I am going to go see our favorite baseball team Thursday night, June 2nd, the Miami Marlins. Very excited about that, boys. And do we know who's pitching yet of the many starting pitchers we like on the team? Yes, but this is all past, so we don't even... Oh, it's already happened. I'm sorry. Well, (laughs) I hope it was a great game. Now, you will be at the ballpark for the Lou Gehrig Day stuff? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be on the field if I don't embarrass myself beforehand. Yeah, this is tremendous. What are you going to be doing? Well, that's what I kind of want to get into. I mean, there are many ways for you to embarrass yourself. I'm not throwing out the first pitch, thankfully. I would never do that to myself. Or the fans. Are you speaking to the crowd? No speaking, but there might be a little video on the Jumbotron, which would be really cool. We're going to honor some folks with ALS at the game. We're going to raise some money at worldofsui.com slash Lulapalooza if you haven't donated already. Uh, we are raising $44,444.44 in honor of Lou Gehrig, who is number four for the New York Yankees. And it pains me to say that on this day, every day, I am a big Lou Gehrig Day fan. And I will proudly wear not a Yankees hat, but a Lou Gehrig hat on my head on Lou Gehrig Day. Well, he may be the last Yankee worth rooting for. Think about it. I mean, we're all Lou Gehrig fans. I mean, <laughs> that's okay. I think Yankee haters are all Lou Gehrig fans. My big question is, are you taking the lovely glow that's radiating? I can't tell. Is the glow radiating from Tom or on him through a lovely Miami afternoon window? It's Miami. That's what my face is. That's just Miami. You look burnished. Someone told me, I told them my age today and they go, what? You're that old? And I took that as a huge compliment. Yeah. Big underdog. Me looking young. Eight to shoot. Paul, the runner. Loose ball. It's good! With 4.4 to go! Shannon! Don't want to fall! Shannon! From the corner! It's over! Gonzaga! The flipper still fits! The cry goes up both far and near for underdog! 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 Joe Namath, number 12, has been the one big sideline. He's come down here and he says the Jets are going to win. In fact, he doesn't even predict it. He says, I guarantee a Jet victory. Oh my kid, I ain't even in the guys' league. In this lifetime, you don't have to prove nothing to nobody except yourself. Underdog! Underdog. They're bigger, faster, stronger, more experienced, and on paper, they're just better. Oh my goodness! The longest shot has won the Kentucky Derby! Rich strike and a stunning, unbelievable upset! Shock it all in college basketball! Underdog! Underdog! I expect you boys to go out there and not take this team lightly because I promise you, they're going to come at you with everything they've got. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Hey, George, the dream is alive. Speed of lightning, roar of thunder, fighting all who rob or plunder. Underdog, underdog, underdog. Well, then I guess there's only one thing left to do. Win the whole fucking thing. 
right. Well, if this feels like the best part of your day, it is because you're listening to the Underdogs podcast. As always, I'm Jordan Brenner here with my best friends in the whole world, Tom Haberstroh and Peter Keating. We've got a great show for you today. Peter's going to try and embarrass me with some trivia and another bet the bet segment. Peter is. I thought that was my job. My job is to embarrass you. I'm going to embarrass you one more. I think the score is three Peter, one Jordan Brenner. So I was having a sign made up, you know, like a leaderboard, but it's not up behind me yet. Remember what I just said about best friends? That's, that's very tenuous. Okay. We're also going to do some playoff hockey. Peter's got a theory about why he's always right. We're going to see if that's true. Peter also plans to uh, yell at me and Tom about runs scored in a little segment we like to call Peter Has the Runs. Oh, oh. I thought it was oh. the horse and buggy, the hot horse and buggy b- brought to you by Peter <laughs> Keating. What's the right response to that? I'll pass? I mean, I don't know. What's- <laughs> but first, guys, NBA Finals, they're here. We're expecting a great series. We got a lot to talk about. Warriors, the favorite. Celtics, not a huge underdog, but an underdog nonetheless. There's a lot of different ways to attack this series, a lot of different things to think about. And we know, guys, that the Celtics have played the Warriors as tough as any team in this sort of warrior dynastic stretch. So how are you looking at this series from a a Celtics perspective? They're definitely the underdogs here. And, you know, we can talk about game one, but really game one, a lot of the times in the finals don't uh, don't matter too much as a predictor of what's going to happen the rest of the series. I always think about 2012, the Miami Heat losing game one. They actually were the underdogs going into that series. That's how revisionist history we are about the Miami Heat era and the big three. We overcompensated after the 2011 loss to Dallas, and then we said they were the underdogs against OKC. They drop game one, and then they win the next four. So I think a lot of this is very narrative-driven, the fact that the Warriors are back together, but they were entering the playoffs. They were plus 1,000 to win the title, which makes them huge dogs going back. Uh, going into the playoffs and getting to the NBA Finals. But the Celtics, I think, should be considered the underdogs here because of the fact that they don't have that kind of championship IQ, that championship pedigree, of course, with Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, and Draymond Green on one side, and Steve Kerr and Andre Andre Iguodala. I'm going to count Andre as a coach at this point until he actually shows up (laughs) eligible to play and healthy enough to play. He is basically uh, like a coach out there the last decade for the Warriors. But what I'm saying is... I'm fine with the Warriors being the favorites here, Um, even though the Celtics have had, relatively speaking, the Warriors number over the last, I don't know, five years or so. Oh, I think this has all been so narrative driven. How many times have we now heard in the past few days that folks are suddenly rooting for Boston because it'll make a more competitive series with Golden State? I think a lot of dislike or apathy at best toward Miami has translated into oh yeah this this will be this will be the better series I think I think Boston sure should be the underdog um, because they just come off a really really tough series really really tough time beating a team that couldn't score so now that they're playing a team that how can I put this can score I think sophisticated analysis says Boston Boston should be a decided underdog even though I realize. Uh, they they match up better than a lot of people think. I mean, they match up pretty well. And, um, you know, all these teams have had their injuries, so on and so forth. I'm just really not even sure we've seen the Warriors at 
complete full throttle. Do you think we've seen Steph Curry at 600% next gear, next level scoring machine? I don't think that's even happened yet. Well, I think it's interesting if you look at Steph Curry's finals MVP chatter. We talked a lot about it on Levitard this week is just uh, how uh, Mike Ryan kept saying how odd it is backhanded compliment or how, how strange it is that he has yet to win a finals MVP. And I kept saying, look, he's he's averaged 26 points, 26, uh, six assists and five rebounds per game in the finals. He's been really good in the finals, but it, it, we, the 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 bar is impossibly high for him because he was a unanimous MVP because they won 73 games in the regular season because he changed the game and he was sensational 403 pointers years ago that he has set the bar impossibly high that he has a better PER in the finals than Kobe Bryant than Tim Duncan than Larry Bird I mean he's 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 incredibly good in the finals but he hasn't won a finals MVP and I think it was instructive to see that ESPN's poll, um, 13 out of the 20 panel- panelists picked Steph Curry as the finals MVP pick, followed by Tatum at four picks for finals MVP, Clay Thompson at two, and Jalen Brown at one. So that would imply that, what, 65% of the panel believes that Steph Curry will win MVP What's curious about that is if you look at DraftKings, Steph is plus 110 to win the finals MVP, which is an implied odds of 48%. I actually think the best value on the board here, guys, is Clay Thompson. Because I could see the narrative shifting towards Clay Thompson and his return from two years away from the game and the ACL and the Achilles tear and the way that the Celtics are going to give so much attention to Steph that I think that Clay Thompson right now plus 1,500, 15 to 1 odds, 6% implied odds there for Clay Thompson. I think that's great value. So I would think so as well going in, but then I did some research. Wow. I know, right? Like, we got me to actually put some effort into something. It was a big deal. Wow. I mean, I got to watch out for my vet the bet throne because I think maybe you're going to try to take me down. You're going to try to take me out as the host there so that you can cover up the fact that you're down 3 <laughs> 1. Well, it can't be research. I mean, nobody, it's not specific Clay Thompson. I did research, damn it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Research. So I went back to the 2001 NBA Finals. Okay. Since 2000, I looked at who the MVPs were. And first I looked at, was that guy the clear best player on his team? The one you would expect. So in this case, Mm. Steph Curry for the Warriors. Best player on the best team, right? Or it would be Jason Tatum, right? It's pretty clear who the best player on each of these teams is. And it is most years, okay? Most years. And, and, And for a couple situations where it was 1A, 1B, I said for those, the early 2000 Laker championship teams, I went with Shaq over Kobe. Uh, and, and so forth. So, 18 of the 22 finals MVPs went to the guy who was the best player on that team. Mm. And again, I got a little cute with Kawhi Leonard and I think it was what, 2013 Spurs? 2014 uh, Spurs, yeah. 2014 Spurs. I got a little cute and I called him the best player because he clearly was after that. But the four that weren't, I went 2004 Pistons. It was Chauncey Billups. I don't think going into that playoff run, he was considered the best player on the team. It probably would have been one of the Wallaces or Rip Hamilton. 
2007 Spurs, Tim Duncan was best player on that team. Tony Parker won the MVP. 2008 Celtics, you could make a case. Paul Pierce, who won the MVP, was the best player. But I think most people that year thought Kevin Garnett was still the best player on the Celtics. And I think uh, KG did finish third in the MVP voting that year. And, and Paul Pierce was 14th. And obviously the one that sticks out like a sore thumb was the 2015 Warriors with Andre Iguodala. The, still the, the strangest um, finals MVP you'll find in, in the modern era. So that immediately points to you really shouldn't be looking past Steph, any, looking at anyone other than Steph Curry or Clay Thompson, uh, not excuse me, looking at anyone other than Steph Curry or Jason Tatum, depending on who you think will win. And so here's what's interesting about that right off the bat. Yeah. Tom, how many ESPN respondents out of 20 picked Tatum? You said 13 took Steph Curry, right? Yeah. So of the panelists, they actually picked the Warriors to win the title 15 out of the 20. And of those 15 that picked the Warriors, 13 picked Curry to win finals MVP and two, Bobby Marks and Ramona Shelburne, uh, picked Clay Thompson. But on the other side, the Celtics, of the five panelists that picked the Celtics for the votes went to Jason Tatum and one of the votes went to Jalen Brown. No, we don't know who's going to win, but if you go with the best player on either team going to win, 13 for Curry, four for Tatum, that's 17 out of 20. That's 85%, right? And Jordan, you're saying historically over the past 20 some seasons out of the past 22 cases, 18 have been the best player on on one of the two teams, the team that happened to win. Which tracks, right? Which is what, 82%. So it's very top-heavy in real life and also in what people are predicting, as long as you leave some allowance for the fact that the Warriors might lose. You know, it might be Tatum or Curry. If I were going to bet the winner of the series, right? I'd rather bet the MVP and get better odds. So if I were going to bet the Warriors to win the series, it's that's minus 150 on DraftKings. I think it's a better bet if I if to just bet the Curry MVP pick at 110, it's not going to happen if the Warriors don't win the win the series. And you're basically saying if they win, it's going to be Curry for a whole bunch of reasons. Same with Tatum, you get the Celtics at plus 130 or Tatum at plus 170. So based on history, it's it's pretty hard to imagine the MVP not going to the best player. Is there value in a player who we could imagine winning, who their odds are long, but are they actually longer? Than history. I mean, Clay Thompson would have the great comeback story. Nobody dislikes Clay Thompson. And given that Curry's going to draw a lot of coverage, Clay Thompson could go off for 40 points in at least a couple of games. You, I, it's easy to construct a scenario where maybe the odds against him shouldn't be as long as they are on betting sites, even though the odds are very long based on history. So it's funny you mentioned that, Peter, because I did more research. Wow! Extra credit, Brenner! Now, I didn't even know we were guiding him along this. I, I was just a natural question. So, all right, all right. The next thing I looked at was, I thought to myself, best player on the team, that's sort of a subjective standard. Let's look just at scoring. Let's look how often the team's leading scorer from mm. the regular season... Okay, regular season, not the series? Going in, right? Because we have to predict it. We can't say... Who is the leading scorer in the finals? Because we, that's, we, we don't know who the leading scorer in the finals will be right now. But first, I took the regular season. Team's leading scorer. How often that guy was the finals MVP. And I found that in the 22 finals we looked at. And again, this becomes even more pronounced if you go back to the 90s with Michael Jordan and the Bulls winning most of the titles. But of, of, of this era, 
15 of the 22 finals MVPs went to the team's leading scorer from the regular season. And there were some very close calls, right? Like 2020, uh, Anthony Davis, by a fraction of a point, led the Lakers in scoring over LeBron. So that doesn't even count. 2017, Steph Curry, by a fraction of a point over Kevin Durant, led the Warriors in scoring. So that didn't count. So if you go to situations where it was much clearer and there's a clean break this year for both the Celtics and the Warriors, again, history says leading scorer, very good bet to be your finals MVP. So that helps the case for Klay Thompson because he's not the leading scorer for the Warriors. And more often than not, like more compared to the best player, uh, the underdog of Klay Thompson not being the top scorer for the Warriors, 15 versus 18, right? 18 were the best player on the best team. And then in your study, 15 of the top scorers. Yes. So it's a lower number. So maybe. But the 15 immediately moves to 17. If you consider the LeBron AD thing a, a tie, the Curry Durant thing a tie. So it, it, it's tricky there. But then I did more research. Whoa. And I looked at, okay, what about, forget the regular season, who was the leading playoff scorer? coming into the finals. So through the first three series, right? So I was, I was looking to capture maybe that year where Kawhi busted out in the play in the finals. And was he, was he leading them in the playoffs and, and doing very well? Well, the interesting thing there is that only 12 of the 22 finals MVPs were the leading scorer for that team coming into the finals. There's no sort of hot hand playoff hero finals MVP Mm. theme. So from that perspective, that gives you the sort of most uh, belief that it could be someone other than Steph or Tatum in that respect, because 10 times in the last 22 seasons, it was someone other than the guy who'd carried them for the first three series as a scorer who stepped up in the finals. Okay, so then here's the real bet for Tom. Right now on DraftKings, you can bet who's going to score the most points in the series. And Clay Thompson is plus 4,000. That's the value. I mean, that's the value. Based on what Jordan is just saying, I mean, that sounds like fantastic value. Curry, uh, Jason Tatum's at minus 125. Curry's at plus 150. Jalen Brown at plus 850. That's interesting. Tom, do you think there's anything to that weird sort of discrepancy between who was leading them in the playoffs prior to the finals and... And what happened in the finals? I think what's interesting there is Jalen Brown is right behind Jason Tatum in the running for uh, playoff scoring. So in the playoffs, he's averaging 23 points a game. Jason Tatum's averaging 27. I, You know what? I actually like the finals MVP long shots here. I think because of Steph Curry and the precedent being set for Andre Iguodala winning, KD winning twice, I think if Steph doesn't come out and blows the doors off of people and Clay Thompson gets a hot for a couple games in those wins. And he has such a tug on people's heartstrings that I could see at plus 1500. I think the Celtics are really going to like triple team Steph Curry. And there's a great story from Howard Beck this week at sports illustrated about, you know, how calling him the greatest shooter of all time is almost like a, um, shortchanging him. It's almost like a backhanded compliment. Um, he, he writes that it's like calling Michael Jordan the best dunker in the game or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has the best skyhook in the game. It's like, no, they're just great all around, great players. And it's kind of, um, 
you know, a backhanded compliment. But Clay Thompson at plus fifteen hundred, if you drop a hundred bucks on that bet right now, pays off fifteen hundred dollars. I mean, that's really good value considering the narrative and the fact that they're gonna throw so many bodies at Steph that it's gonna open up the door for Clay Thompson. I think the narrative for Steph is just as strong though. And I think there's a real there's a real desire to almost give him a lifetime achievement award should they win this series and he's never won a finals MVP. It's the opposite of voter fatigue. Exactly. So the, the, the argument that Steph's legacy rides on this series is being made by people who actually want to help cement his legacy. I think that's probably true, right? Um, also, I just want to say calling Steph Curry the best shooter in the game is like calling Bob Dylan the voice of his generation. It is it is a backhanded compliment. He's the voice of every generation is what you're a saying? voice of many generations. Yeah. An eternal voice, yes. What is a generation for singers? Especially for like Bob Dylan. Like I get it with a basketball player, like LeBron James, best player. He's a generational player, right? Like his, he's played like 20 years. But what is it for a singer? I think it's probably the five or seven peak albums of impact, right? For So for Dylan, it's probably from... 65 through, I don't know, when, 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 maybe when he became born again in the late 70s, 65 through 75. Okay. I guess so it is the same like length as, as LeBron's. I think it is, yeah. And there's, sometimes they have similar career arcs too, you know, and there's some rookies of the year who don't pan out and there's some, you know, late blooming artists slash athletes. It's interesting, interesting parallels. I like how Luca is like a generational player and then like once in a generation and then like Steph is also that and then LeBron is also that and KD is also that. And I'm like, wait, this is all like saying there's 10 people in my top five. It's like, how can that be? Yeah. I mean, you just named 10 players in your top five. So that actually can't happen. There's more talent in the league these days. So Maybe there's maybe there's more than one MVP every season now. I can't wait for your generational take right now. What is your generational take? Actually, I have a question because I was intrigued by the, the couple of players that Jordan named who were not the best players on their teams. And I was trying to find out, I was trying to figure out if there's any commonality between that crazy Andre Iguodala finals MVP and other choices. And you know, there have sometimes it does seem like in very, very tough, evenly matched series. Sometimes the award will go to a very smart guard who made a lot of good plays and kind of enabled his team in clutch moments. If you go back before Jordan, Joe Dumars won a finals MVP. You go back way further, Jojo White won a finals MVP. I mean, what do you think about the odds on somebody like that? Somebody who's not one of the top two leading scorers, but is a kind of a, you know, the kind of floor general that awards voters often like to credit. There's no precedent for that. I mean, Joe Dumars wasn't, he wasn't even the point guard. He wasn't a four general. I think he was probably the leading scorer on that team. In fact, I'm going to go look. The problem is that all this research you have a giant hole in the time you can look at, which is Jordan's career, right? You have to look at the past 20 years. And then before that, there's another 20 or 30 year block, but it's in the 80s and the 90s. So maybe there's just nothing in common at all. Joe Dumars narrowly uh, was not the leading scorer on those Pistons uh, by a point per game behind uh, Adrian Dantley and, and, and Isaiah Thomas, but was a fantastic player. A great player, yes. A great and player and a great guy. More to the point, there's just not a lot of precedent for... We wouldn't have been betting on him for finals MVP. I'm just wondering if there's there's a long shot player anywhere, anywhere like him or some of the complete surprises. You call Joe Dumars a smart 
floor general. Joe Dumars is a really smart player. A yeah. smart floor I thought general. you were going with the pun of a really smart player. What do you yeah. think are the odds of Marcus, Marcus. Smart? Yeah, well, I, what do you think of the odds? I, I kind of think the odds of, you know, I guess there's no way Marcus Smart is sneaking home with the, with the award. But at plus 4,500 seems like, seems it's just like those are just longer odds and he will genuinely be the best player during the series. The odds aren't that long. Well, if he does shut down Steph, right, and the Celtics do win and Jason Tatum doesn't have a good series, like by his standards, and Marcus Smart hits a couple game winners or a game winner, that is the only scenario. I mean, it's a long shot, 4,500. If I'm going to bet someone on the Celtics, it's going to be Marcus Smart because of his assignment with Stephen Curry. I could see the same thing happening with Marcus Smart as it did with Andre Iguodala, where the best player in the series, LeBron James, is picked up by Andre Iguodala, and then the series changes. Narratively, they give the finals MVP to his defender, even though they're crowning LeBron James as the best player. So if you lock down Steph, Marcus Smart could be that coronated player. Um, so if I'm going to go with long shots, here's my pick. Uh, I like Clay Thompson at plus 1,500 and Marcus Smart for the narrative def- defense on Steph Curry at plus 4,500. I would put some money on that. I hear what you're saying. The only one I really like is the Jalen Brown bet. I think there's a, a good chance the Celtics can win the series, certainly better than – what do you see Brown at? I have him at plus 1,100. Yeah. There's a good enough chance that they'll win the series, and I do think there's a lot of Jalen Brown things. It's not just he's going to score. He packs up stats in other categories as well. And I think there's some value in that. But then if I'm looking really down the board, like th- th- there's no point in going past the the top couple guys. I just – the Andre Iguodala MVP – is such a strange historical footnote that I just don't see that repeated. All right, so you're telling me not to put my money on the small chance that this is the moment where Marcus Smart introduces himself to the nation. To get smart, we don't want the chaos. Is there some small chance that Al Horford goes crazy in the paint against a smaller Warriors lineup and there's some lifetime achievement voting for that, maybe? Look, I'm sticking... I think the strategy here is to pick which team you think is going to win the, the championship and bet the bet either Steph or Tatum. How's that for underdog advice, baby? Well, there you go. And I mean, it's very easy to sum up. To get smart, you have to avoid chaos. Overdogs. All right, all right. You're saying if Marcus Smart puts Steph Curry in H-E double hockey sticks... Wait, did somebody say hockey? What? Hockey? Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. 
Do you have a hockey segment you want to get to? It's a little cold in here. Let's warm it up. Let's warm it up. Feeling hot, hot, hot. Feeling hot, hot, hot. Feeling hot, hot, hot. Speaking of warm, I mean, have you, you I mean, you're down in Carolina. You're down in the Sun Belt. Have you been to any of these like Carolina barbecues that they hold for hockey games? Are you a, are you a caniac? Did you uh, have you transferred your allegiance from places like Hartford, Connecticut to Raleigh? You know, Charlotte and Raleigh aren't close to each other, right? Oh, uh, they're close enough. <laughs> close enough. Get out of here, man. Of course, I like Carolina barbecue. Lexington barbecue. Give me that that red sauce, that vinegary barbecue. Yes, I love Carolina barbecue. Well, we all love Carolina barbecue. I meant during hockey games, the way the way that there's now. You know, they, they act like hockey is almost a native tradition now. It's it's a little crazy. You do not besmirch the Carolina barbecue in this company because John Skipper himself is from Lexington, North Carolina. You do not spit in the general direction of the Carolina. I hate that you, you scoff at the barbecues. It's delicious. It's amazing. Are you more of a, a vinegar-based Carolina Eastern barbecue person or like a Kansas City, Texas, more of a not a, a thicker, sugar ketchup-based? Smoked tomato, dark base, instead of drowning your grits in vinegar. I mean, come on. Now, the one thing I do know is that real barbecue aficionados say it has nothing to do with the sauce. Real barbecue doesn't even require sauce. It's just the smoking of the meat. The smoke. It's the smoke, Jordan. Just like in Vet the Bet, when you get smoked, that's what it's all about. You're going to bring the smoke for your for your Peter's lukewarm crease today or what? We'll get back to that later. Here's where we can scoff at about everything Carolina, which is their ability to keep goalies in the net. Oh my gosh. By the end of game <laughs> seven, the Rangers were down to what? They're, they're, they're facing the third string goalie how often can the Rangers face third string goalies? I mean, the secret to hockey playoff triumphs is somehow getting, somehow knocking out all of your opponent's goalies. I mean, that that's a weird that's a weird lesson to be drawing, but it's not that far off the uh, not that far off the mark. I wanted to bring up the fact that early on in this podcast, what like a month ago, we talked about a theory. Uh, I'll use the royal we that we had developed, which said that. Um, Hockey goalies, go, hockey playoffs depended so much on goalie performance that the right way to pick underdogs was to look at which teams had the biggest gap between the number one and the number two goalies because nobody goes to a rotation in the playoffs. You put your number one guy in, and if that guy's a lot better than anyone else you've been playing, all that other performance goes away. Everything rides on the number one guy, and the team with a huge gap between their best and the number two goalies was, of course, the New York Rangers. And I think I pronounced the Rangers goalie's name is everything, including the word turducken, uh, in trying to explain that. And not only that, but turducken gave up a boatload of goals, I should say a platter. What, what would go with turducken? An arm and a leg? Gave <laughs> an arm and a leg. Yeah. Anyway, the Rangers surrendered <laughs> buckets of goals in games three and four of their first round series against Pittsburgh, just as we were talking about this, and shook our confidence or my confidence in this whole theory. And we were left to just throw up our hands and say the whole thing was a matter of chaos. Well, what's interesting is since just about that time, the New York Rangers have found not only that, that not only has Shesterkin's performance dramatically improved, but the Rangers started throwing their bodies in front of the puck to block gobs and gobs of shots. Not only that, they found another way to concentrate top level performance in a handful of players, which is they've been outstanding on the power play. 
They, so the Rangers are getting outshot. And if you look at traditional, what you might call traditional advanced analytics, like real-time hockey stats, Rangers are getting outshot to a ridiculous extent, but they're finding ways to win anyway. That's not because they've ignored analytics. It's not completely because they're lucky. It's because they've found ways to extract really great performance out of a relatively small handful of players, topped, of course, by their goalies. So I just wanted to make sure we circled back to that and said that our original ideas about what might boost underdogs in the NHL playoffs actually has held true, at least in the Eastern Conference. And this Rangers-Tampa Bay series is going to be a, a hell of a series because now you have probably the two best goalies on the planet are going to go at each other. And we're going to see if the Rangers keep allowing... Goalies don't go at each other. That's right, Peter. Peter. Like starting pitchers don't go at each other in baseball. Oh, I think starting pitchers are quite aware of the, the opponent they're matched up against. Don't you? No, this, this is why NBA players are more valuable than hockey and in baseball. Also, Shesterkin plays out of the net a lot. He goes, he literally goes after opposing players. Okay, true, true. Are are, are you done with hating on Carolina and and tooting the New York Rangers? Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, Carolina brought in Frederick Anderson specifically to make it further in the playoffs, and he got hurt, and then his backup got hurt. So that's a terrible run of luck, and I, I don't know, I don't know if that's worth firing a coach over, but they'll have a long, hot summer to think about it. And by the end, and by the end of the chippy series, I was back to uh, rooting for a very compelling Rangers team, who are now clearly underdogs against Tampa Bay and are pursuing an interesting underdog strategy. I, I wanted to, now that you were talking about hockey, I wanted to draw your attention to something I wrote down here from earlier today. Mad Dog gave his top five most storied franchises in sports. I'm going to give you the five teams. This is not a vet the bet, but this is just a quiz. Chris Mad Dog Russo? Yeah, Russo on first take. Let's talk, let's, let's talk about that. Uh, does a lot for Start franchises. Who has number one pairs? It's got to be the Steelers. The Steelers and the Celtics and the Canadians. Tell you, Lunkhead, there's only one storied franchise in all of sports. It's the New York Yankees. You give me a two to the five. I'll tell you, you know, it's ridiculous. You don't assume who number one is. Back after this. I hear the five teams. Alphabetical order. Alphabetical order. I didn't know he could spell that well. Canadians, Celtics, Packers, Steelers, Yankees. Rank what Mad Dog ranked those five teams in the most storied franchises? Who is number one on his list? All right, Yankees were number one on his list. Yeah, the Yankees, the Yankees, Steve and I. Number one on the list is the Yankees. That's correct. Number two. I think two is the Celtics. Two is Celtics, for sure. No, it's the Packers. Packers. Oh, that's oh. ridiculous. Number three on the list. Celtics. What would Chris Mad Dog Russo Celtics. put on number three? It's the Steelers. What? <laughs> number four on the list. Hey, hey, Mikey. Mikey, number four. Number four. How are the Steelers ahead of the Lakers? The Lakers aren't even in the top five. That's a disgrace. It's a disgrace. Number four is the Celtics, and that means the Habs are number five. That the Canadians are number five. He put a hockey team in there above the Lakers. Do you agree with this? Well, that's a deep anti-Canadian bias. The Steelers have no business being there ahead of the Lakers. They're posting like black and white footage for all of these teams. <laughs> Mad Dog basically fell asleep the last 20 years. Could this list have been the same? If we just erase the last 10 years, 20 years, Yankees, Packers, Steelers, Celtics, Canadians. Seriously. This list would have been the same in 1976. (laughs) 
Okay, okay, fine. Wait a minute. There's one team on there, the Yankees, that were in baseball. And I want to ask you, you have the hot corner. You just did the hot crease, and now you have the hot corner. We're out of the crease now? Are we out of the crease as far as Shesterkin? Shesterkin. It's Turducken, Jordan. It's Turducken. Zabanajad. Zabanajad. I got that one. You got that one? Yeah. I told you why, right? Do you know how much I'm enjoying getting back into the Rangers, by the way? I used to be a huge Rangers fan. And then sort of I got so involved covering basketball and other things that I just couldn't follow hockey on a day-to-day basis. And now I'm much more, I'll tune in in the playoffs, but it's great having this back going again. My son's getting into it. Like, Let's go Rangers. I happened to move back home and live with my parents during the year that happened to be the 93-94 season. And I spent an entire, basically fall, winter, and spring watching every Knicks and Rangers game with my dad that season, which turned out to be just a great thing. He would go downstairs when the Rangers were on the West Coast. He had a little black and white TV. It was about, you know, as big as a laptop now. And he would go downstairs because he didn't want his screaming at the TV to wake up the rest of the house. So he watched every LA and Vancouver game. And I actually don't remember. I mean, since 94, I can't remember genuinely thrilling series as much as coming back down three to one, two series in a row. This past three or four weeks has been really something, hasn't it? I mean, just objectively speaking. They weren't, well, they weren't down 3-1 against the uh, the Canes. Don't don't slight my Rangers that, that no, much. No, no, I'm sorry, but they did have to come back. They did yes. have to, yeah. 2-0 down, and then, yeah. But they yeah. were three, yeah, yeah. Yeah, against um, the Penguins, yeah. Yeah, and as they say, great, you know, the big players step up in big games. That actually happened in game seven. It was quite something to see. Zabinijad's awesome. So that's not really an underdog take, but they are underdogs now against Tampa. Jordan, you like their chances? They're big underdogs. They were big underdogs this whole season. This is happening way faster than this rebuild was supposed to last. Yeah. All their young players are still on the fourth line, right? The they kid line. I love it. <laughs> Capo Caco, Lafreniere. And their midseason acquisitions have proven very, very valuable. Tom is so bored right now. It is, it is just fantastic. But the key thing is what we always say about the playoffs. If you get the best performance out of your very few best players, that's how you can go toe-to-toe with a supposedly better team. And it's really something to watch with the goalie and the power play performance. It's pretty It's pretty interesting. So I think they do have a shot. I don't think it's all an analytics mirage or all luck. But they can't keep getting outshot by 10 or 20 shots a game. They just can't. Well, look, they are clearly on a great run. And speaking of runs, Peter... Let's hear your stupid philosophy on why this is a relevant stat in Major League Baseball. I thought I heard this take already from Chris Russo from the black and white (laughs) era of TV. The same take we could have heard 70 years ago on network television. But go ahead, Peter. Uh, Mickey Rivers scored 130 runs, Mikey. Well, Jordan, that's actually interesting. Uh, How often did Mickey (laughs) Rivers score 100 runs? Well, uh, got to get on base, Mikey. Get scored the runs. There have been a lot of leadoff hitters throughout history who sat atop very outstanding lineups and didn't score 100 runs because they weren't effective players. Bobby Richardson of the 1961 (laughs) Yankees, okay? You hear Peter going for the youth movement right here. He's really trying to expand our audience (laughs) with Bobby Richardson. Bobby Richardson played like 160 games. Mickey Mantle batted third behind him, and Roger Maris hit cleanup. The year that Roger Maris, it might have been Maris third most of the time, but anyways, the year Maris hit 61 home runs, okay? Played full-time, hitting on top of the 61 Yankees lineup with Mantle and Maris behind him. How many runs do you think he scored? 
I don't care. The answer is nobody cares. <laughs> I don't care. I mean, Ricky Henderson scored 145 runs runs a year. Bobby Richards just Bobby Richardson scored 80 runs because he sucked. So my point, my point is simple. For anybody looking for fantasy value, because in fantasy leagues all around the country, despite our prolonged attempts to advance easily comprehensible analytics, batting average and hits in general are still overrated. You cannot, you can be an ineffective player if you have a high batting average, or you get a lot of hits, or you drive in a lot of runs. All I'm saying is you can't be an ineffective player if you score a lot of runs. If you score a lot of runs, it means you had the power, the speed, and most of all, the on-base potential to put yourself in scoring position. Year in and year out, there are guys with war below zero who drive in 100 runs. There's hardly anybody ever who scores 100 runs, which is a really, like, it's a really basic statistic. It's a counting number of something they've been keeping track of since the 1840s, right? But it is meaningful because a lot you have to do a lot of good stuff to get in position to score a lot of runs. I thought we were arguing that point last week, yes. which was like runs are overrated because- Right. There are other measures called on-base percentage and other yes. things that show you if you're doing the things that are necessary to create runs. It's almost impossible for you to have a lot of war and no runs is what you're saying because you just focus on war. You focus on the guys who have a good on-base percentage and slugging or an OPS and forget about the runs because it's a BS category. It's more indicative of the people who are behind you and your ability to get on base. That is more important than your ability to get on base, your on-base percentage than anything. It's more predictive. So in fantasy baseball, actually, actually, your runs scored reflects also. It does not just reflect your on-base percentage. It reflects your power because the more you get on base through extra base hits, the more likely you are to score. It reflects your speed, and this is important for fantasy lineups. It reflects. Yes, it does reflect the lineup that you're hitting in or atop. But it is much less situation dependent and more predictive than RBIs. So let me just say this. Year after year after year, leagues score about an average of 0.5 runs per hit. For every hit players have in general, that group of players scores about half as many runs. And year after year after year, if you look at players who have a lot of runs per hit, those players represent excellent value in fantasy, and you can usually get them in trades or drafts, this time of year trades, for much less than they're actually really worth. And but this, I still this, don't understand this, what you're saying. This simple technique will lead you to players like Brian Dozier in the past or Kristen Yelich, and there are guys out there right now who you can look at their, basically their explosiveness potent, potential, just you can do it in your head, runs per hit. First of all, your original argument last week was never from a fantasy perspective. It was not. It was an overall baseball perspective using run score as a player's value. I'm not talking about sliding Billy Hamilton here. By the way, he was a guy from the 1880s who scored a lot of runs. I'm just saying, for example, there's a lot more value to Miles Straw, who I might completely disregard because of his lack of power, but he's positioned in a good lineup. He actually steals a load of bases, and he gets to second and third base a lot. So there's more value there. Are you saying that fantasy players don't notice players who steal bases and score runs? They only have to keep track of five categories. We look at it year after year after year. Guys with high batting averages are consistently overvalued in drafts and probably overvalued in trades 
in most leagues. Okay. I get what you're saying that batting average is overrated. Focus more on your ability to hit for power and for your on-base percentage, which is something called OPS, which is something that was in vogue 12 years ago. Thank you, Mad Dog. Peter, I have an amazing book recommendation for you. It just came out really hot. You'll enjoy it. It's called Moneyball. It's a good one. I've read it. It's very good. A lot of people are starting to, 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 to check it out. It's about the uh, several-time World Series champion Oakland A's. The only, the only guy who's ever been with a damn who had a high uh, batting average in baseball was Billy Miller. Billy Miller for the Sox. Amazing batting <laughs> average. That guy, oh, he could hit the ball. He is a f- amazing, amazing leadoff hitter for the Red Sox. You guys remember Tony Armas? Senior. Hit 30 homers a year. Cannon of an arm. Drove in 120 runs. People in Boston, speaking of Bill Miller, thought Tony Armas was great. He batted cleanup behind Jim Rice. He used to ground into 30 double plays a year each. The truth was he walked about 29 times a year and he had no speed. His on-base percentage was terrible. He'd score like 65 runs while driving in 120. Right, because he's not at the top of the lineup. He's hitting behind the good players. What I'm trying to get across is when you're looking at raw stats, it's far more meaningful to score a lot of runs than to drive in a lot of runs. That's all I was saying. That's what, and that's what, you, that's what you pummeled me over saying in our last episode. They're not equivalently meaningless basic statistics. If only there were something that could shut him up, like some music. What's that? Do you guys hear that? That's Vet the Bet! Let's go! It is time! We have finally muzzled Peter on his hot corner and the greasy crease. (laughs) Whole pork is not greasy. I guess it could be. Carolina barbecue. It's time to Vet the Bet. Let's go. The comeback begins. It's the internet's hottest new game show where we vet the bet. Here's how it works. I study a bet's track record, and then I quiz our esteemed underdogs experts panel about that particular bet's history. Okay, so it's the French Open. It's the clay, not Clay Thompson, but it's the French Open here. It is really exciting. Rafael Nadal, he had an amazing four-hour, 11-minute marathon win over the Joker in the quarterfinal. We're heading into the, the semis. And historically, according to DraftKings, Rafa Nadal looks like the heavy favorite going into the semifinals. And historically, according to SportsOddsHistory.com, The favorite on the men's side going into the semifinal has won eight out of the last 12 French Opens. Again, heading into the semifinals, the favorite heading into the semifinals has won eight out of the last 12 times. Nadal most of the time and Djokovic once. On the women's side, Iga Sviantek, the favorite, is threatening to beat Serena Williams' streak of 34 straight wins on the tour. And since 2010, spanning 12 French Opens, here is the bet that needs to be vetted. How many times since 2010, spanning 12 French Opens on the women's side, how many times has the pre-semifinal favorite won the Roland Garros? Again, eight of the last 12 on the men's side, how many on the women's side the semifinal favorite actually won the French Open? We're looking at when there were four players left in the semifinals. 
Yep. Not the pre-tournament odds. The odds at, at that point. Got it. The odds at that point for the men's side was 8 out of 12 eventually won the finals, the French Open. But on the women's side, is it A, seven times? Is it B, six times? Is it C, five times? Is it D, four times? Or is it E, three times out of the 12? Because, Jordan, you are trailing in the series three to one. I'm going to ask you to go first with your pick to give Peter some extra time. Do not Google this, Peter. I see what you're doing. Hands up. Both of you, I want to see your hands. Women's tennis for years had been very chalky, and then it's been a lot more unpredictable in the last decade. So I'm going to go with... I'm at a severe disadvantage because Jordan is a former tennis player. I'm going to go with D4. Final answer. Jordan is checking in with D4. Peter, what is your answer? I was going to say D, but I think you would not like it if we had the same answer. I agree with Jordan after... I mean, and Jordan knows this because we used to study dominance uh, after there were dominant champions for a while. I don't know who the hell's won the (laughs) the French Open on the women's side last couple of years, maybe, but I I think it's gone all over the place. I will say choice... I will go extreme. I'll say choice E, three. The answer... Is B six oh. times? Neither of you got it. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. Wah, wah, wah. The winning favorites: Svantec at twenty twenty, twenty nineteen Ashley Barty, twenty fifteen Serena, twenty fourteen Sharapova, twenty thirteen Serena, and twenty twelve Sharapova. All the favorites heading into the semis and eventually won the French Open. Actually, two out of the last three years. We've seen the favorite in the uh, women's French Open in the semis win it all. So you're saying the year Sharapova won, she was the favorite going into the semifinal. Yes, she won in 2012 and she was the favorite, plus 110 favorite in 2012. Probably wasn't chalky, Jordan. It was probably the favorite by that time was different than would have been a few months ago because of Serena's injuries. Or pregnancy. I lost again. Yep. Yep. The last six favorites going into the semis have all been different heading into this year. So it's been very all over the place. Well, that's what we were trying to get to with our I overcorrected. Oh, sure. I sure. feel like that question was stacked against us. The favorites are never the same. To have gone four out of 12, it's going to go to form when there's only four players left. I, terrible guessing by me. You would have expected that to be true about your vet to bet performance also, but that hasn't happened. Wow. You know, what's interesting to me is the Joker, Novak Djokovic. He actually was the favorite four times over the last 12 years is only won once in those four times. Whereas Nadal, when he's the favorite, he wins because he's Nadal at the French open. That's what he does. So in this vet, the bet, none of you get a point. So the standings are as follows. Peter, up three, Jordan, one. Can't wait for the next one. Well, this tells us two things specifically. One is, historically, Nadal is the greater player than Djokovic because Djokovic has not overcome that and and won in uh, the French Open, I think. I think, but I, you know, feel free to disagree. The second thing is, regression to the mean doesn't happen to some arbitrary average, right? Like, your natural level of contact with a baseball, for example, could be that you hit... 300 on balls in play or an, or 260. And you could be going a very different direction if one year you hit 280 because you regress to your own mean, right? So 
it just shows you when Jordan's performance in Vet the Bet, he could, he, he might not regress to the mean. His actual level of performance may naturally just be this bad. We need a bigger sample size, but we, we shouldn't necessarily expect him to improve. <laughs> I love this. And we're going to do the stats 101 on regression the mean as it relates to Jordan Brenner's performance in Vet the Bet. We just did, baby. <laughs> I quit. <laughs> oh, oh, please. Tom, why don't, you, why don't you tell the people what we have coming up next week? Oh, I can't wait to sit this one out and just grab a big old thing of popcorn and whatever is my my nicest little glass of wine so I can kick back and watch the, the show. Next week, we are going to do a Tony Awards preview with an esteemed panel. Peter, I kind of feel like you initially were feeling like you're going to be you know, the loudest voice in the room, most confident person in the room. I feel like with our panelists, you actually might feel a little bit intimidated right now. I will not be intimidated. I will just enjoy the ride. I mean, as they used to say, you know, the Biltmore Garage wants a grand, but we ain't got a grand on hand. Now they've got a lock on a door on the gym at PS84. That's how I'm feeling. We got the oldest established permanent floating podcast in the country. That's right. We're going to be talking musicals. I'll say one other thing. Calling Jordan the voice of our generation is an insult. To our generation. <laughs> We're going to have Eric Schwartzel from the Wall Street Journal covering the movie scene. He's a Hollywood reporter and author of The Red Carpet. He will be joining us as well as Peter. And speaking of Tony, Anthony Mays, our producer, his father is going to be joining the show to give his report on all the handicapping on the tone. And we're all in agreement, right? Like this is like going back and visiting your junior high teacher. I mean, we're calling him Mr. Mays, right? We, I mean, it's, it's Mr. Walter Mays. We're extremely honored to have him, but I don't think I can call Mays' father by his first name. I think we- I just we wanted just to call say Tony. To call him Mr. Mays. Tony, Tony, Tony. Mays is checking in in the chat. He says, no, he'll make you call him Walter. <laughs> call me Walter. I love Walter. Walter, Walter, Walter. Sorry, I just did a Tommy Heinsohn. Yeah, no, I got I, I love Walter. I love Walter. I can't do a good Heinsohn. <laughs>